We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 today. This is a fantastic text. I am so excited to preach Jesus from this text. So, if you have your Bibles, please open it up to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to invite my beautiful wife to come up, and she's going to read from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. Sorry, I lost my spot. We may eat of the fruit of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made Adam made for Adam, and gave for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man, and to the east of Eden he was placed, He placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. 
pray with me. Father, it's good to gather this morning. It's your people. Lord, it's even better to open up your word. And Lord, we pray and ask, would you illuminate your scriptures? Would you fill me with your spirit right now to bring your word to your people? We pray that it would give us much hope. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning, I want to open up with a question for you all. How would you answer the question, what is the greatest problem facing humanity today? The greatest problem facing humanity today. What would your response be? What about your non-Christian neighbor? What would they say? What would their response be to the greatest problem facing humanity today? What might Google say? Well, don't worry. I, I did the hard work for you, and I Googled it this week, and I found a BBC survey amongst millennials, you know, the next generation, and some of the answers that they said that the greatest problems facing humanity today are a lack of education, economic inequality, large-scale conflict, you know, wars, and the number one answer Climate change. (laughs) Freaking millennials, come on. (laughs) Of course, right? But honestly, how might you answer that question if someone asks you? Would you know where to go to in the Bible to answer that question? Well, today, in Genesis 3, it lays that foundation. It lays that foundation to reveal to us what humanity's greatest problem is. And spoiler alert, it's our rebellion towards God. It's our rebellion from God and his ways. But from Genesis 3 onward, God makes it clear that he has a plan. He has a plan. And it doesn't just lay the foundation for our rebellion and the judgment that has come from that rebellion, but it also lays a foundation for hope. So this morning, we're going to focus on our rebellion from God has left us in judgment. But we can hope in his merciful resolution. So if you've been with us for the last two weeks, we've been in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And commentators often see Genesis 2 and 3 as one narrative unit. One narrative unit with the main character being God. And we've seen this God, the Lord God, a personal God, create Adam We've seen this Lord God create this wonderful garden that he put Adam in. We see him sculpt Eve from Adam's rib. But today we will see him as a judge conducting a hearing in a courtroom. But we will also see his mercy. His mercy. So again, our rebellion from God has resulted in his judgment but we must hope in his merciful resolution. And those are my three points this morning. Rebellion, result, resolution. Rebellion, result, resolution. So my first point, rebellion. This is going to be verses 1 through 7. And up to this point in our story, in Genesis 2, there's been just three characters. The Lord God, Adam, and the woman. But as Genesis 3 opens up, there's a new character that comes on the scene, the serpent. 
And right away, we, we have no introduction. He's just there. But just a couple of things to highlight. This serpent is a beast. He's been created by God. He's part of the livestock. This serpent also is crafty, meaning he's trying to accomplish something. And probably the strangest thing is that this serpent is talking. And that trips up a lot of people. But I think it's safe to say, I think it's a safe conclusion that this serpent has been influenced by something. Something from the outside has come into this serpent. But with those foundational groundworks moving forward, let me just make clear that the author of Genesis isn't concerned with those things. The author of Genesis wants us to focus on what the serpent does. What the serpent does. So right away, the serpent says, did God actually say? And there's his agenda. He's trying to bring doubt to God's word. He's trying to bring it into question. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's sowing seeds of not only doubt, but he wants the woman who he's talking to, he wants the woman to see God's word as incredulous, that it cannot be trusted, that it is open to her interpretation. And the woman's response Well, we can eat the fruit, but of this tree in the midst of the garden, we cannot eat it, and we cannot touch it, or we'll die. She almost gets it right. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Let's just be clear here. God says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now God is giving this commandment in Genesis 2, 16 and 17 to the man, to the man, the leader, because the woman has not been created yet. But it's, pretty, it's a pretty simple command. <laughs> do not eat of this tree. When you do, if you do, you will die. And so the serpent sees the opportunity and he strikes. You will not surely die. And there it is. There it is, the blatant lie. And I just want to pause from the dialogue here and just point out something that gets easily overlooked. I want to point out the pronouns that are being used in this context here in verses 1 through 5. The woman is using the pronoun we, but the serpent is using the pronoun you. But you in this context is plural. And we're starting to see that someone else is actually present in this conversation, in this dialogue. So the you is plural here. And he says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And there it is. The serpent gives a blatant lie. He speaks on behalf of God. And he wants to make sure that Adam and the woman do not trust God's word. And notice what happens next. The woman takes God's word into her own interpretation. And those seeds of doubt 
take root. They begin to grow, not only in the woman, but also in Adam. Notice what happens next. In verse 6, she saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes. The tree desired to make one wise, and so she took of its fruit and ate. And there we see the progression, the downward spiral of the woman rebelling against God. She didn't take him at his word. She's essentially saying, oh yeah, that tree is good. She's making that judgment for herself. Whereas before in Genesis 1 and 2, God has been the one determining what is good. Not only was it good, but she begins to lust after it. She delights in it. She has these desires welling up within her. And she justifies her rationale. She says, it'll make me wise. I will know what's best once I eat this fruit. And so she takes it and she eats it. And the rebellion is clear here. But we must always remember that like the woman, we too have underlying motivations in our rebellion towards God. We call this the sin beneath the sin. It starts with God's word, undermining it, and it quickly goes to doubt. And then to straight up disbelief, and we take matters into our own hands. Much like Eve takes the fruit in her own hands takes a bite and hands it off to her husband, Adam, who it's very clear at the end of verse 6, who was with her? Who was with her? And we see that he's there the whole time. We see Adam's passivity and the abdication of his role as the leader of his family. He knew what the commandment was. It was the only prohibition for him in the garden. He knew what he was doing. And he had a unique opportunity here, namely to call out the lie. He could have said, wife, this isn't good. And he could have pointed her to the truth. He could have pleaded with her. We're created in the likeness of God. We're not created to be like God. But he's passive here. And notice what happens. They don't die right away. They don't die right away, and there's a bit of a half-truth by the serpent there. Their eyes are opened, and they see themselves as they truly are, naked. And it's not just physical nakedness. What naked refers to here is a full exposure. They see themselves for what and who they truly are, and they don't like it, and they don't like it. They feel shame. And they try to cover their rebellion, their sin, their shame. They try to cover it with sewed fig leaves. In humanity's rebellion, we not only question God's word, but there's a complete rejection of it here in Genesis chapter 3. They tried to become like God, the authority, the arbiter of what is good, as well as they tried to be autonomous from God. And that same temptation that our first parents faced in the garden that day, we face every day. Every day. 
And guys, that's why we need community. That's why we need the means of God's grace in our lives of his people. Because we have the same temptation every day to question God's word. And we need people of truth, the people of God, to point out our sin, to point out our underlying motivations and desires, and point out our rebellion to God. It is a means of grace that you are a part of a church. Just this week, I was chatting with Aaron about our needs as a family for medical insurance. And I was honest with him, and I told him that my ethics, my moral compass gets all out of whack when it comes to providing for my family because I don't take God at his word. And what I told him in a, in a moment of honesty, I said, I am tempted to lie on my medical insurance application about our income so that we get the, the medical insurance that I think is best, that I want for my family. And Aaron just graciously said, you can't do that. <laughs> you, you can't do that. And it wasn't this huge confrontation or this harsh rebuke. You can't do that, Daniel. And my conscience was seared. I knew that I couldn't do it, but I didn't want to do it. Actually, I did want to do it. But he helped me see that that's not God's way. And I need to take him at his word. God has always provided for me and my family. And he always will provide for our family. Because he promises it in his word. So, like Aaron was in my life, who's in your life? Who in your life is speaking truth? Who's pointing out blind spots? Who in your life can be that means of grace? And if you're married, let me just say it has to be someone in addition to your spouse. Your spouse will be the main means of grace in your life, the main means of sanctification of you growing into Christ-likeness. But it has to extend beyond that. So who's in your life? So humanity's rebellion is in clear view. And let us turn our attention as the scene changes and our main character comes back into focus. We'll look at the result to humanity's rebellion, which is a pronounced judgment, but also mercy. So verse 8, our judge comes onto the scene. He's walking in the cool of the day. What this means is he's walking in the evening breeze. His rebellious children, they hear him and they hide. They know their guilt and they are afraid. Our judge confronts the the rebels and questions them. He puts them on the proverbial stand. He puts Adam in the dock first and says, Where are you? Where are you? And Adam's response, truthful yet condemning. I was afraid and I was naked. I hid. And the judge with his second question, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And Adam, he's guilty and he knows it. God has him. And what's really interesting about his response here is not just that he blames the woman, but look at who he's actually blaming here in verse 12. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, 
She gave me the fruit and I ate. Adam just went from singing about being with his bride at the end of Genesis chapter 2 to now he is subjecting her to God's wrath so that he wouldn't experience it himself. And he's not only trying to take the focus off himself and put it on her, he's actually putting himself in the place of God. He's wanting to be the judge. And he's saying, if you didn't give me this woman, I wouldn't be in this position right now. But God won't have any of it. Amidst Adam's rebellion, wickedness, heinous sin, you see how depraved Adam truly is here. But God's not going to have any of it. And he will deal with Adam appropriately. But before he does that, he shifts the focus and he questions Eve. He questions the woman. What is this that you have done? And she follows Adam's lead, and she shifts the blame to the serpent. It was the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. And guys, we do this all the time. We do this all the time. I was thinking about this this week, and it's like I come home from a hard day at work, and there's Michelle cooking dinner in the kitchen, and I come and I give her a big fat smooch, and there's Augie at our feet, and he's just screaming because he's hungry. And then there's Solomon and Jude, my five-year-old and my four-year-old in the backyard. And they're swinging sticks. And then all of a sudden, one of them gets whacked. And then the other one, two hands them and gets whacked. And it's just chaos. And so then I get a little tense. And I get a little angry. What is going on? And I go out and I question him. And, well, if he didn't do this, then I wouldn't have hit him. And, well, if he didn't pick up the stick, then I wouldn't have picked up. And, and it just goes on and on. And I'm just growing in anger inside. And then I'm like, well, Michelle, if you would have had dinner cooked when I got home. And, I, and we, we shift the blame. And we don't only shift the blame. We don't take ownership for our sin. We don't take ownership. There's an opportunity here for Adam and the woman. Adam could have owned up to his sin. He could have said, you know what, God? I disobeyed. I took and ate of the tree of which you commanded me not to eat. Take me instead of her. Punish me instead of her. But actually the opposite happens. And God, being true to his character, being a God of justice that makes things right, that go wrong, we see that come into focus here with his judgment. But we also see him true to his character of being a merciful God. And then he turns to the serpent. And notice that he doesn't question the serpent. He curses him. He says, cursed are you. And there's a play on words here. He says, above all livestock, you are cursed, and to your belly you will go. And God humiliates the serpent. Another one bites the dust. But notice that he doesn't utterly destroy the serpent because that time is coming. And then we come to Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, we get the first glimmer of the gospel right here in the fall of humanity. And we see that there's going to be enmity. Enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. It's actually really interesting because if you think about it, 
early on in Genesis chapter 3, you see the serpent opposed to God. But here, what God does is he doesn't oppose his creation. No, he's good and he's merciful in his creation. He opposes his creation against itself. And he says that there will be enmity. There will be a rivalry. There will be a final battle between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. You see, the Bible does not teach this dualistic perspective that good and evil have always existed and that they will always be at tension with each other. No, God sets the record straight here. He is the sovereign God who is in control. And he says that the woman's seed will strike, will bruise, will crush the serpent seed. But it will come at a cost. It will come at the cost of a strike to the woman's seed's heel. And if you notice, there's an incredible amount of foreshadowing, ambiguity, but right here in the fall of humanity, we begin to wonder, who is this serpent crusher? Who is this serpent crusher? And we see in Genesis chapter 4 that Cain comes on the scene. And we wonder, is it Cain? No, he kills his brother. We'll see that next week. And then is it Noah? No, he gets drunk in a garden and he's much like the first Adam. Is it Abraham? Is it Isaac? Is it Jacob? Is it Joseph? Is it Moses? Is it David? And we're just left wondering, who is this serpent crusher? And whoever it is, he will be struck on the heel. And here we see in the fall of man, the inauguration of redemption that God sets forward to make things right. So moving on, the judgment to the woman. She actually has two judgments. The first has to do with her role as a mother. She will have pain in childbearing. In case you are questioning this, I'd like to share with you that I'm not a woman. But I am married to a woman, and she's been through three labors. She's been through three of the hardest things that I've ever seen someone go through. And boy, oh boy, let me tell you, it is painful. And after that child comes and Michelle has it in her arms, <laughs> I, me, I let out this huge sigh of relief. And I'm just like, wow, <laughs> you are my hero. What you have just done, there is no way I could have done that. And there's pain in the midst of having children, but there's also mercy. God could have wiped out humanity right then and there, but instead he allows the woman to continue to have children, and humanity continues. Children are a wonderful gift from God, even if they are selfish rebels who impede my selfish pleasures They are gifts of God's mercy. And then comes her second judgment, and it has to do with her role as a wife. He says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. What this means is that the woman is going to want to take control. The woman is going to want the husband's role, and she's going to want to lead. 
she will have the urge to do this, the urge to usurp. But notice God's merciful response to it. He says, but he shall rule over you. Don't get thrown off by that word rule there. What God is saying here is that the husband always has and the husband always will be the leader in the home. This is God's design. This is God's mercy, not his judgment. And ladies, let me just call you to please trust God here. Please take him at his word. The role of husband and wife, the the role of headship within the home has been under attack ever since Genesis chapter 3. And we, as God's people, have a unique opportunity here. And ladies, you in particular, you have an opportunity here to honor your husband as the leader in your home. And gentlemen, this statement here that you are to rule over your wife, that's not saying that you are to dominate her, but you are to love her. You are to take your God-given role and serve her. Will you take him at his word and trust him? He's created you. He knows the path to not only blessing, but fulfillment, satisfaction, and joy. And what it comes down to is will you trust him? Then we come to Adam. And God's judgment comes in its greatest severity. And God states why it's most severe. He says, because you listen to the woman. Because you listened to her, you abdicated your role, and you trusted her and not me. And he says, cursed is the ground. Thorns, thistles, hardship in your labor. If you ever wonder why your job sucks, it's right here in Genesis chapter (laughs) 3. Your job sucks because God has cursed it. God has cursed our jobs, and the reality is, is that our job was never meant to fulfill us. Only God is. Our jobs are difficult. Your last job was difficult, your current job is difficult, and your future job will be difficult. Yes, there is blessing within it. There can be elements of satisfaction, but ultimate satisfaction is found in God and God alone. And that's why he cursed it. But there's still mercy here in this judgment. Adam can still work the ground. He can still get plants that are good for food. And by the sweat of his brow, he can still get bread and provide for his family. And then we come to verse 19, the ultimate and final judgment amongst Adam, but that is passed on to all of humanity. He says, Adam will return to the ground, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is a death sentence. And we see that God is true to his word. And the serpent, Satan, is the father of lies. He is not true to his word. And within this death sentence, it's not just physical death, but it's a spiritual death. And we see a separation between the creator and his created image bearers. 
And as the Apostle Paul makes clear to us in the New Testament, and in Romans chapter 5 in particular, Adam is the federal head over all of humanity. His sin becomes our sin. His death sentence becomes our death sentence. And he is our representative. His shadow is cast on all of humanity, and it is a deep and dark valley that we find ourselves in. A deep and dark valley that we find ourselves in, this Genesis 3 world, where there is sickness, where there is suffering, where there is so much pain and strife. And whereas before there was eternal life, now there is terminal life. But... Genesis 3 doesn't end there. And God's plan of redemption doesn't end there. And we can take hope in God's merciful resolution. In God's merciful resolution. This is my third point here today. Resolution, verses 20 through 24. Starting in verse 20, we see the woman. The woman is now given the name Eve. A little bit more honorable than woman. And Adam does it because he believes what God said in verse 15, that the woman will have offspring. She will be the mother of all living, Eve. And then in verse 21, we get another glimmer of the gospel. Let's read it. Verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and clothe them. We see the Lord's provision before the fall as he brought a helper to Adam, and we see the Lord's provision after the fall as he covers their nakedness. And by covering what they're ashamed of with skins, namely with animal skins. Before Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin with fig leaves, which, hey, we're in the fall right now, we all know that leaves will eventually wither and crumble. But animal skins are longer lasting. Animal skins were provided by God to not only protect them, but to cover their shame, cover their sin, cover their full exposure of nakedness. And let me just remind you that the primary audience that Genesis is being written to is the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel who is very familiar with the sacrificial system, with the shedding of blood to atone or to cover sin. And we see these glimmers of the gospel. But then as Genesis 2 and 3 come to a close, we see that Adam and his wife Eve are driven from the garden. And the tree of life comes into focus. But they're guarded from it. So that God's death judgment and his perfect purpose of redemption will continue. And they don't have the opportunity to take matters into their own hands again. So east of Eden they go, banished from God's presence. And it's because of their sin that they cannot come back in. And God guards it. He guards it with the cherubim. The cherubim are these angelic, flying creatures created by God. And if you follow this theme of God's presence through Scripture, through the Bible, 
the cherubim come on the scene. We see it in the tabernacle when the Ark of the Covenant is crafted and constructed. The cherubim are overlaid. They are overseeing the Ark of God's presence. Symbolism there. We also see it in the first chapter of Ezekiel when Ezekiel has this vision of the glory of the Lord, of God's presence. He sees cherubim flying around. And then when the temple is constructed in Solomon's day, there's this massive curtain, this huge curtain that separates God's holy presence from the rest of sinful humanity. And on that curtain are sown cherubim, cherubim. So they are there to guard sinful humanity and make sure that it stays out of God's presence. And as the garden scene comes to a close, we're wondering what's going to happen to God's creation amidst such heinous rebellion? What is going to happen? Who is the serpent crusher? And that doesn't just happen at the end of Genesis chapter 3 or the end of Genesis, but it happens at the end of the Old Testament. And we're left wondering, where is the hope? But then Jesus comes on the scene. And God's plan of redemption begins to come into full focus. And we see early on in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter chapter 3, it traces Jesus all the way back to Adam. All the way back to Adam and Eve, the mother of all living. And then we see in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus is tempted by Satan, much like Adam was, but in much more difficult circumstances. You see, Adam was tempted in a garden just one time. And in that garden, he could eat of anything he wanted. Well, almost anything. But Jesus, when he's tempted, he's in a desert. And he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And he's tempted not just once, but three times. And each time, he answers Satan with God's word. He battles Satan with the truth of God's word, and he trusts God's word. Jesus is the final Adam who passed the garden test that the first Adam failed. And then, before he went to the cross, Satan enters Judas, one of Jesus' closest companions. But Jesus doesn't kill Judas. No, he loves him. He serves him. He washes his feet. And then, when he goes to the cross, bearing the death sentence that we all deserve for our rebellion before God, he stands in the place of his bride. And he says, take me. Don't take her. Take me. And then he dies on the cross for our sin. And it looks like the serpent's strike has killed Eve's offspring. But then, immediately after he breathes his last breath, the curtain in the temple is ripped in half. And God's presence is opened back up to sinful humanity. And it's as if Jesus is saying, yes, because of your sin you can't come in, but because of me you can come in now to God's presence. And then he rises from the dead. And we see that the serpent strike did not prevail. 
that Jesus is in fact the promised seed of the woman set forth in Genesis 3 and that he is the serpent crusher that died. He is the serpent crusher that died so that Satan would never taste victory. Good always triumphs over evil. We can take hope in this amidst such rebellion, amidst such, amidst such death, such pain in the world that is around us. There is an incredible amount of hope. God set the stage right away for things to be made right. He will always make things right, and we can trust him. We can trust him. We can take God at his word because of Jesus, because of his life, death, and resurrection. Will you trust him? Will you take him at his word? Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a a weighty text. This is a difficult and hard text. But Lord, I'm thankful for Genesis 3. And I'm thankful that right away we see that humanity has a problem. We all battle with this challenge to take you at your word. And Lord, in a room like this, we know that there are probably even people here who are are wrestling if if they should even believe you and and what you've done, Lord Jesus. And so God, I I pray and, and I just ask, would you create faith? Would you create faith in people who have yet to come to know you? And would you create faith in your people who do know you? And Lord, I pray that we would respond in obedience to your word, knowing that obedience is not the condition for our salvation, but it is always the consequence for our salvation. And God, we ask just that as we go forth, would we press into you? Would we press into your word? And would we trust you for the means of grace that you've put around us, especially your people? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.